Welcome to Good Business, a weekly podcast to help you create a business that is good for people, planet, and the profit line. Hi, I'm Chris Edwards. I'm a serial entrepreneur. You may know me from my first business, Honeycombers, which is a digital lifestyle guide, providing you with everything you need to know to enjoy your local city. We operate in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Bali, and this year we're in our 15th year of operation. Or perhaps you know me as the founder of Launchpad, a community movement designed to support entrepreneurs who aspire to create conscious companies. On this podcast, we're going to explore the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial ride and understand how successful and clever innovators and business leaders bring people, planet and profit together to build better businesses. So what does it take to create a heart-led business? Join me and together we're going to learn how to create a good business. Before we do, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I am recording this podcast on, Bundjalung Country. And I pay my respects to the elders past and present, and I extend my respects to all traditional cultures. All right, let's get into it. Today, we have a super exciting guest, Adrian Desballots, the co-founder and CEO of the Salad Stop Group. Salad Stop is the first and largest sustainable, healthy, and environmentally conscious food chain in Asia with over 74 outlets across seven markets in Singapore, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, Japan, and Korea. Founded by Adrian and his father in 2009, the group is known for putting the planet first. Adrian has accomplished two rounds of funding, a COVID pivot, launching Asia's first net zero restaurant while sticking to their original initial motto, eat wide awake. We dive into learn more about his entrepreneurial journey and why doing good is essential in his business. Hey, Adrian, welcome to Good Business. Thanks for agreeing to join me here. Thanks for having me, Chris. You're so welcome. Um, I'm, I'm so intrigued about Salad Stop. Um, I just wanted to, I suppose, start at the beginning. How did it come about? And, and was there like an aha moment for you that triggered the, the concept and the idea? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I started the business with my dad. So, um, you know, grew up in Singapore, I guess we, um, this is, was home for about 15 years. I was working in China and he was working in Thailand. And, you know, this was just the tail end of the financial crisis. And, um, you know, I got to spend a little bit more time in Singapore looking around the market and really just couldn't find many healthy options. I think we saw that Singapore was changing quite a bit and uh, thought, well, let's, let's think about what we can do here from a, you know, a QSR perspective. <clears throat> and uh, that's when we started doing a bit of research. And, uh, you know, he had extensive experience in the hospitality industry. So, you know, had um, worked a lot in Singapore and, and knew a few suppliers and had access to locations. So yeah, just sort of started putting a business plan together. We actually wrote out the full business plan um, with marketing, finance, projections, uh, and signed on three locations before opening the first one. So we were very bullish. And um, and also I think we, you know, at least for me, it was something um, I, I, I grew up eating healthy. My, you know, I was in a pretty much a vegetarian, vegan household. Um, so it came quite naturally to me. And, and I think with his operational experience, obviously we we were able to you know work out the systems from day one and, and make sure that we started off on the right foot. 
Wow, um, that's very bullish. So you had the three locations before you 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 opened the first location. Yeah, so we opened five. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yes, and his uh, retirement savings on the line. So yes, we were we really took a bold step, and uh, I think uh, just you know we we but at the same time I would say we you know we had done our homework right. So we we spend a lot of time scouting the market, um, uh, going through our basically an entire feasibility study on our own, um, and knowing knowing very well that you know this was a, a time in Singapore where. Um, things were starting to pick up. You could, you know, you could see the momentum, uh, and and a lot of companies were moving back to Singapore. Um, and I think we knew that you know we needed scale, and and that the model wouldn't work with one store, or it could work, but that was not our ambition. Um, and that we needed at least five. So you know, those three locations just happened to come up at the same time. This was again where landlords had quite a few available spaces, rents were lower, so we just realized there was a, a window there, and we jumped straight into it. Well, it's nice that you were able to do it with your dad, but that's very brave. What was the biggest challenge in that that first year that you got going? I think it was just sort of keeping the operation together. Um, you know, trying to open five stores in, in 12 months, I think, was, you know, without SOPs in place, without uh, a central kitchen. Um, I, I still remember vividly asking all the store managers to bring their dressings, you know, um, to the office. And, you know, we saw that all 20 dressings were different in color, different in taste. And, you know, you gave everyone the same recipe, but somehow they, they still managed to kind of have, uh, you know, deviance across all of the recipes. So I think for us, um, you know, that was probably the hardest part, We're kind of running around between five stores, um, just making sure that things were staying consistent uh, and, uh, and that was also the fun part. I mean, we were really hustling. We were on the ground. We understood, I guess, the business inside out at that point because we, you know, were living and breathing that every day. And how many stores have you got today? So today we have seventy stores um, in eight markets. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, what I find really interesting is that you've always had, I suppose, a real sustainable approach to what you're doing. I really want to know, like, it's quite expensive is the wrong word, but, you know, there are more costs involved when you want to do things in a more sustainable way. What were the costs that you saw that you weren't expecting to make sure it is sustainable? Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, from day one, I think it was very much baked into the DNA. I think the, you know, the whole concept was built around sustainability. I mean, even it was built around um, local sourcing and reducing our carbon footprint. So even before you know, the whole farm-to-table movement, even before um, people were talking about packaging and, and, and the environmental impact of that. I think we just baked that into kind of the company and how we we kind of put the whole product together. So um, we looked at that very early on. We sort of built that into our margins. Um, but I think, you know, as a small business, and I mean, we started off as a family business and, and you know, put everything on the line here. So we had to be very careful with cost and think about it very much in terms of, you know, what could we uh, provide customers in terms of baby steps? And, and that could mean simply saying, look, do you really need a bag? Um, you know, can you bring your own bowl? We will incentivize you. So not necessarily things that cost a lot, but um, just trying to frame them uh, and, and trying to engage customers. I think that's, we've always seen that as our role, um, you know, being a little bit of a, a platform and trying to educate and just making you know, small little sustainability initiatives, just a little bit more convenient. So from day one, that was always how we looked at it. Uh, today, we can take much bolder steps. I think we can 
start looking at producing our own molds in terms of packaging. We, we've got the volume now um, where, you know, I think we've, we've always, and again, this comes back down to how we looked at the business from the beginning, right? We always believe that with scale comes impact. And that's, you know, not just in terms of sustainability, it's through everything we do. Um, you know, we, within the first few years, we were able to go to a, a chicken farm up in Malaysia and saying, look, we, 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 we you know, love, love your, your product, but we need it to be antibiotic hormone free. Um, and that was something that we were able to do because we were, you know, we had the scale at that point. That's pretty cool. And I love your business motto being eat wide awake. That's a motto that you've had for quite some time, right? Yeah, about 10 years. <laughs> right. And tell me about Eat Wide Awake. Like, tell me the, the philosophy behind that. Sure. So this came also at the you know, very early stages where we started seeing customers asking us uh, a lot more questions, you know, where the product is from, um, was it antibiotic hormone-free? And um, I think we, we, we realized that actually for us, again, our role in this whole ecosystem was about uh, education and we wanted people to ask questions simply, you know, it was just about saying, well, you know, we will be as transparent as we can be, whatever information we have, um, we're open and honest about it. Um, but it's up to you to challenge businesses, uh, demand more. And that's even more relevant today. So it's interesting because, you know, we've, the, the, the slogan, I guess, resonates not just in Singapore, but across all the markets. And I think, you know, for us, the way we, we translate Eat Wide Awake is slightly different um, in every market at different time periods as well. It means something a little bit different, but I think it's, it's just been very relevant throughout the last 10 years. Mm, cool. And have you seen a big shift in the awareness, particularly in Singapore? And are you seeing a wave of people who are more conscious with their choices and are looking for health, not just healthier, but more sustainable businesses to buy from? Definitely, definitely. I think it's it's still quite a confusing space. I think there's there's you know a lot of mixed messages. There's I think customers need to sort of try to fend off what is real, what is not, what what a company truly stands for, what what their sustainability journey represents. I think um, that we're just in the early stages of that, but. Uh, for us, we've definitely seen um, customers being a lot more engaged, challenging us as well, um, criticizing us, um, and, and we're very open to that. I think we're always, you know, looking for that feedback. So um, I think it's, it's great. It's great to see that, that people are taking more act, proactive steps. The, the one piece, I guess, that we're still seeing a bit of a gap in is, is for them to actively participate. I think we're we're seeing customers sort of supporting brands that, that are more sustainable, but for them to, to really uh, engage and, and be proactive about it, that's the part that even for us, we're trying to figure out, right? How do we redesign our stores a bit differently? How do we communicate with them online? Um, how do we try to capture their attention for those few seconds when they walk into a store? So all these things are actually what we're in the midst of working on. Oh, that's very cool. And you, you have actually received quite a lot of media coverage about your net zero store in Capital Spring. So congratulations. Thank you. But one of the interesting comments I read was that even before your net zero journey, your outlets were already at 30% of the industry benchmark in terms of admissions. So how have you been able to accomplish that? So yeah, Capital Spring was actually a a two-year project in the making. Um, it was, you know, a combination of all of our sustainability initiatives. And 
At the same time, I think what we wanted to do is work with industry leaders and experts here that could help us not just validate all the data, but also make sure that we were building you know, a, a, a roadmap for the long run, right? And I think, so the, the, the stored capital spring, we look at it as a living lab and we were able to experiment, you know, with recycled plastic, turning those into tiles. We were able to look at fallen trees in Singapore and upcycling those into tabletops, um, finding recycled chairs, working with delivery on a carbon neutral delivery. So these were all initiatives that we had sort of been working on on the side and, and, you know, being able to source those partners. But then this was an opportunity to bring that together. And, and in order to do that, I think we, number one, needed someone who could help design it. So we worked with a firm called Pomeroy Studio. Uh, they actually um, are sustainability sort of focused architectural firm. And they looked at um, all the materials we were using and how we could, you know, tr- not just reduce the carbon footprint of the construction, but also the operations, right? So the type of lighting, the the the, the aircon, everything that kind of, you know, runs the day-to-day operation. Um, and then we worked with a company called Unravel Carbon. Unravel Carbon helped us uh, map out our entire supply chain. Uh, and that's that was a, obviously a huge project looking at, you know, um, every single SKU uh, and figuring out what the carbon footprint was there. So once we had all that data, we then had two partners there that would be able to bring that together uh, in a store. And like you said, um, you know, we were actually able to bring that down to 22% of the industry average. And we were able to bring down the carbon footprint of an existing store to this new store at Capital Spring by another 30%. So, um, you know, we, we and what's obviously interesting is through that whole journey, we were able to then see, okay, well, these are the the other parts of the supply chain or the other parts of, of, of the construction process that we can bring down. So, Again, it's it's that store is net zero today. Every um, store that we renovate or build in Singapore will be net zero by 2025. Um, and so, but we know all the progress that we can keep making and where else we can bring that down. Yeah, great. And it, I mean, it really helps that you've found partners that can help you because it's a big job, right? Understanding how to get to net zero and what what initiatives actually move the needle. And it's pretty exciting to see so many more of these, I suppose, specialist consultants in the market that are helping businesses reach this goal. I wanted to ask you, uh, we recently had your chief brand officer, Catherine, come and attend a Launchpad event, which was fantastic. And the topic was all around greenwashing, which I'd just like to get your view on it. I feel like there's a lot of greenwashing going on. Um, It's difficult for consumers, right? Also uh, difficult for companies now too. I've heard of a a new thing um, being green hush where people don't want to talk about their sustainability initiatives because they're frightened they're going to be shot down because potentially they're not doing enough. But, yeah, I'd love your view on on the current state of play when it comes to greenwashing and the green hush. Yeah. I mean, I definitely see it as, as, you know, a... A process and, and a time that we're in where customers are even themselves trying to figure out what it means for them and what they what they want to support um, and and I think you know what we're seeing is just the hard questions being asked and I think that's what is obviously pushing a lot of businesses to position themselves in terms of being green and trying to find an angle um, and I think the you know the what customers will increasingly look for is that level of transparency and and, and 
sort of, you know, being able to make up their own minds about what, what is really green. And so I think it's, it's going to be, you know, a few years. Um, and, and I think for us, you know, because it's been part of, you know, our processes and, and the way we built the business from the beginning, I think we, we just don't feel that we need to make much of an effort. I mean, we're, we're quite fortunate in that sense that we also obviously have a product that, that allows us to, um, to source locally uh, and allows us to work with local farms. Um, but um, I think for, for a lot of the, the big corporates, not only is it, you know, what is it going to mean in a customer's mind, but I think what they need to all figure out right now is, well, how, how do we inculcate this into the organization? And I think for us, we believe very much that it needs to start within the company. Uh, and once your people believe in it uh, and you're able to identify what sustainability means to you, then it actually feels real and, and, and can actually resonate with a customer. So that's, I think, where a lot of companies are. And, and I can understand, you know, for a lot of the more mature businesses, um, it's tough, right? They, they have very fixed supply chains. They, they, they might not have the innovation to necessarily turn this around just yet. Um, so they're all trying to figure out, which I think some customers are willing to give them the slack they need to figure this out now. But I would say the next few years, uh, you know, there'll, there'll be enough um, options out there where where people will be able to choose. Yeah. So in some ways, it's actually easier as an entrepreneur coming into a new business now because you can have, you know, sustainability baked into your core. And what's challenging and where people are getting criticised is where they're kind of tapping it on as a modification that doesn't come across as genuine but it comes across as marketing spin but yeah I suppose as an entrepreneur it's great you have the opportunity to to start you know what's that, that saying start as as you would like to finish you know like set it up right I want to ask you a little bit about funding last year you completed a round of investment raising 8.8 million US 12 million sing so congratulations that's that's a pretty large number very daunting for entrepreneurs um, and I'd love to know, like, uh, how did you know when it was the right time to bring in investors? And I suppose, how did you work out who would be a good investor partner for you? Sure. So this was our Series B, actually, um, and was about five years after our Series A. Um, our Series A was more around bringing on um, two VCs that were uh, strategic value add, I think at that point in our journey, um, you know, we were a family business. I think we were starting to scale internationally. Um, we needed a little bit more corporate governance, a little bit more structure, and also um, an, an, an opportunity to, to bounce off ideas. I think that's, you know, that's, if you find the right partner, I think, and, and the right investor, I think it's, you know, even at the board level, I think it's very valuable to have, you know, people that you can, um, exchange ideas with our series B was quite different. I think we, we started seeing that we were, we were sort of playing in an ecosystem where we were the customer facing side of, you know, agri-tech, food tech. Uh, and, and I, and I think now with the power of technology and the way we see it sort of overlay on, on the business, I think we see that, um, and, and we needed investors that would understand that landscape pretty well. So, you know, that's where we, we sort of knocked on Temasek's door. Um, obviously, you know, they've invested a lot in this space, uh, agri and food tech. So we actually fall under the agribusiness umbrella of Temasek. Uh, and it gives us an incredible lens into that future food, really, right? And that's, for us, what we're incredibly excited about. Um, 
they obviously believe in, in you know sustainability and all the initiatives we're doing, but it, it translates into their you know whole investment strategy as well. So um, you know, for that was our lead investor, um, and then we also added you know a few more key strategic partners in there that. Again, we're focused on tech or consumer products. Um, you know, East Ventures, for example, is obviously very uh, heavily involved in Indonesia, and we have a big presence there. So, yeah, we we were really able to find a, a great set uh, of investors for that round, uh, and that um, yeah, we're just excited to keep building the business with. That was your Series B, that round with Temasek? That's right. I just saw on Tech in Asia um, a diagram of how many startups they're involved in uh, and it's pretty incredible. A big part of what's exciting would be obviously funding's good but just having that knowledge base would be a bit of a game changer. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, cool. If you had your time again with the investing experience or getting investors on board, would you do anything differently? Any advice for people who are thinking about getting funding? Oh, good question. I think we've, you know, we were fundraising in the middle of, of a pandemic. So for us, it was, it was it's sort of hard to, to obviously be in full survival mode in, in some ways, right? As, as I think we, you know, really had to manage a business that was international and that was going through so many ups and downs. And then at the same time, thinking about the big picture. So I think it's, it, it is about timing. I, it didn't seem like the best timing to do so, but at the same time, um, it was because, you know, 2021 was actually a, a great year for a lot of um, startups in terms of fundraising. So I think we, yeah, we, we did, we did time it right. So that, that's one piece. Um, and I think it's, it's also just to always have these conversations, right? I mean, I think, you know, even us now, so we're, you know, a year after our series B and, and we we keep sort of thinking about all the other opportunities that are sort of on the table, right? And I think it's it's that kind of mindset to get into that you're in a way always fundraising, um, and 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 not necessarily that you're approaching funds from that angle, but that you're always having conversations, uh, and that there's there's you know um, always going to be opportunities to come about, and you can't necessarily predict all of that. Um, so. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fine balance, right? You need to obviously focus on the core business, growing that, uh, making sure all the fundamentals are right. But at the same time, it's, it's always good to keep looking at the big picture. Uh, and it, I think as entrepreneurs, sometimes it is a little bit hard because you can get quite kind of buried into, you know, just that, that kind of hustling and making sure that you, you, you're growing the team, scaling the company, but then, um, you need to, uh, yeah, still always look at the, the, the your North Star, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, totally. This podcast is brought to you by Launchpad, a community movement for conscious entrepreneurs. If you're seeking a sounding board, advice, masterclasses, or maybe just looking for a network of people that are in your corner to support you, come to thelaunchpad.group website and check it out. We'd love to meet you. And I'd love to know about your experience with COVID. I mean, a <laughs> pretty terrifying time for most entrepreneurs. But uh, what happened with you guys? Like, obviously, lots of restrictions. And uh, how did you cope? So we, I guess, got to see the very early days of COVID. We have four stores in Hong Kong. So um, it, it obviously kind of started trickling in um, into Hong Kong uh, in February 2020. And so we prepared all of our other markets and really seeing, you know, the impact that it had on Hong Kong. So even Singapore, we only saw the impact in April, 2020, but we already had two months to prepare for that. So 
After that, I think it was, you know, pivoting the business. So we were fortunate that 50% of our business was already online. Um, so we were able to then transition, you know, onto all the delivery platforms and even through our own app. So our, our operation was built for that. Um, we definitely lost a lot of our customers, you know, in the central business district in Singapore and, and a lot of the office areas and other markets, but we were able to kind of get them back in residential neighborhoods. So we moved very quickly once things opened up a little bit more. And that, you know, was, for example, in Singapore, we saw that, you know, we were, we were delivering to certain pockets of the island that um, we were not in. And we, we basically moved equipment around the island to open cloud kitchens. And, and that really helped us because we were able to, to look at the delivery radiuses uh, that we were operating in and all the data we were getting in um, and, and then just popped up all around the island um, with new cloud kitchens. Uh, so those, some of those are still operating today and actually uh, turned into some of our best performing stores. But um, yeah, we moved very quickly. I think we, we, you know, we took data at heart and, and looked at every key data point um, throughout COVID uh, when borders opened, then we finally got to travel again and, and, and reconnect with the teams. Um, and then it was just uh, the last six months have been more of a rebuilding phase. I think just, you know, trying to um, look at what, what how the market has changed because each of these markets have also changed quite considerably. The behavior is not necessarily the same across markets. Uh, and that's what we have yeah, really built the roadmap um, towards. And, and I think next year is where we're, able to start um, growing again. Yeah, right. And when you say looking at the data, what kind of data metrics are you studying to look for opportunities or look for areas that you need to focus on? Um, we were looking at just um, delivery um, zones and, and where those orders were coming from because during COVID, um, a lot of the delivery companies then opened up the option for, for restaurants to uh, deliver island-wide and in order to deliver island-wide, you you took on the delivery yourself. So um, uh, Deliveroo, for example, would hand over the customer address to you, and then you would then um, fulfill the order. So we then were able to see, okay, well, beyond the three-kilometer radius that we usually operate, we're now delivering to the east, to, to the north, and, and where where you know some of the gaps would be. And, and over time, we basically saw enough of a concentration to say, look, if we were to open a cloud kitchen around there, we would be able to capture already, you know, 100 customers a day and that justifies a store there. So, you know, we were able to to kind of build our strategy that way with those data points. Uh, and uh, and then, you know, we, we were also able to, to obviously during that time, as, as things we opened, starting to speak to customers and, and you know, just understand where the market was headed, no one was going back into the offices. So um, we, you know, we, we we roughly knew where most of our customers lived, um, and uh, and yeah, just kept kept pivoting the business, and it still continue today. I think you know the the landscape is just different and will be different moving forward. Um, work from home is real. Um, I think the 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 way customers find our product, the what they expect from us in terms of an experience, you know, if it's, it has to be an omni-channel one. And if it's done through our own technology, I think, you know, the expectations and the standard is, is as high as it has ever been. Um, so that's what we're very focused on now is, you know, how do we bring a whole online offline experience um, moving forward? 
Yeah, and that um, that percentage of fifty percent of your business is that it's still today. It's fifty percent online and fifty percent in store. Is that right? Yeah, almost a little bit more actually. It's about sixty percent online. Wow, is that happening in QSR everywhere, or is that unique to you guys? It, it is happening for most QSR operators. I think uh, you speak to McDonald's and, and and those guys. I think they've they've just seen even their own uh, proprietary technologies. I guess really take the forefront of I think the McDonald's apps. I forgot if it's twenty thirty percent of the business that now gets generated through that. Um, but yes, I think you know we we probably have seen the restaurant industry split in two ways. One is pure convenience, which we fall under, and and I think we're trying to also um, bring back customers into store because we believe strongly that if you're operating purely online without product, it's a little bit dangerous. So you, you need to provide that in-store experience and connect with the customer. Um, but then we need to just, you know, be super strong on the convenience front, right? Because I think for the rest of the industry, they're going to be um, more experience-led while um, they, you know, a lot of the fine dining restaurants that went online um, have gone back purely offline, right? And, and I think they... They don't, they, for them, op- operating in that environment is just too complicated. Yeah, right, right. Oh, that's fascinating. And going to your consumer, is your target audience or your current consumer, do they consume unhealthy food as well or, or are they a different group to, to who would dine at McDonald's or KFC? Oh, they definitely do. And I think, I mean, a big part of our sales still comes from the chicken Caesar wrap, which I wouldn't say is the healthiest. <laughs> it's sort of an introduction, I guess, into some stuff. So. Um, we, we, you know, we, we ultimately, we want to still appeal to as many people as possible while staying true to our beliefs and, and the core offering. Right. So, um, you know, we have two other brands. One is called Haybo, uh, which is a warm grain bowl concept. And then uh, Wuxi, that's a rice roll brand. And both of those, um, you know, are just a little bit easier as an introduction into healthy food. So we, we generally push those out a little bit more in terms of, you know, if it's unhealthy sides or just things that may be a little bit more naughty. I think that's, that's where we, we, we find customers uh, gravitating towards. But then um, I think, you know, we, we, we try not to, again, preach health to our customers. I think it's, you know, we want to make it, again, as easy as possible for them to navigate through that um, if they feel like, adding bacon to their salad, well, you know, that's that's obviously their choice. I think we're just, you know, focused on uh, on a few fronts, I think, with salad stuff. I think um, and a lot of this, again, revolves back to sustainability, um, you know, from more plant-based options, obviously making everything from scratch, no preservatives, you know, just a few fundamentals are always there, and I think that's what customers can trust us with. Yeah, right. Cool. And I wanted to ask one, one thing that's really unique about your business, I think, is that you started the company with your father and now you're running it with your sister and brother-in-law. I mean, does that make Sunday night dinners tricky? Like, is it hard to, to separate, <laughs> you know, work and play? Not at all. I mean, I think we're, we're all so passionate about this business. I think we, you know, we share, I mean, a lot of our common interests evolve around the business and, and uh, I think we... You know, we have young kids, so I think it's it's uh, no, it's it's a it's a fun time. I think uh, my dad is no longer in, involved in the day to day, which helps because I think then probably be too many voices uh, around the table. But um, I think you know the we all have uh, different skill sets and different 
areas that we focus on. So I think that helps as well. Uh, I think we all realize kind of our role within the organization. Uh, and even even when it comes to, you know, the office, I think we, we sort of have our own teams. We, we travel to different markets as well. So, so we get sort of a bit of time apart as well. Well, that's healthy. I'm, I'm pleased to hear about that. And how, how big is the wider team now? How many staff? So the corporate office, we have about 35 people in Singapore. And uh, in the operation, if you count uh, even our franchise markets, would be about over 2,000 people. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That must be one of the hardest parts of the business is, is managing the human resources and managing the, you know, getting all the salad dressings right. So um, how do you get everyone singing from the same song sheet? So, so Singapore is HQ and I think that's where, you know, everything starts from sort of Singapore. So, you know, the sort of culture um, that we've built here, um, the, the processes, just, you know, 13 years of, of being consistent, I think being family led and, and being very passionate about maintaining those standards in Singapore, I think uh, has, has held and especially through COVID actually, I think, you know, we had set up all of this prior to COVID in our international markets as well. You know, Singapore becomes the training ground. It comes also where if we work with, with international franchisees, um, they spend some time here. They, they learn about our operation. They interact with the team. And, and when we expand abroad, we also spend a lot of time uh, finding the right partner. And that, you know, has, has been, I guess, a big key to the success because we know that we... Uh, will not be able to fly solo in a place like Indonesia or the Philippines. We need people on the ground that understand the local market, that speak the local language. So that that is a big part of also, um, you know, just the, the way we grow is that we've, uh, you know, for example, Thailand we was probably one of the more natural um, markets to enter uh, early on. Um, but, you know, we're opening there in five weeks. And that's because for the past 13 years, we were just not able to find the right partner. Um, it just didn't gel. And um, we are coming into the market a little bit late. But at the same time, we, we, we're very confident with the partner we have and that, you know, we can, we can do well in, in, a, in a market like Thailand. So, yeah, I, I think that's, that's really, you know, been the key to success and, and just making sure that we, we really spend a lot of time in Singapore as much time as possible and that this still becomes, you know, um, our shining star and where we set standards and where the culture is built. Yeah, and, and what a great country to do it in, hey? So I've got a, a couple more questions. Is franchising your growth strategy from here on in or will you grow into new markets with own stores as well as franchise stores? It will be a mix. So we actually... Um, uh, in a joint venture in Hong Kong, a joint venture in Indonesia. So if we find that we really value add to that market and, and that partner, um, we're happy to go into a joint venture. I think if we feel that there's, we, we as a franchisor is a more natural route, I think we're, you know, we're very happy to kind of operate that way. So part of it is bandwidth. Part of it is, again, the strategic value we bring to that partnership. Yeah, right, right. And what's on the horizon in the next three years? Do you have a, a roadmap of countries you'd like to bring salads up to? Yeah, so we'll still be very focused on this part of the world. Um, I think, you know, a big part of the opportunity we see is actually just deepening our footprint. So it's not necessarily going off, uh, to Europe or the US uh, and, and spreading our wings too wide. I think it's actually 
more about deepening um, that footprint. And, you know, we have new brands that we're launching um, in Indonesia and the Philippines that actually have even more scope to grow than Salad Stop. And this is in secondary cities. This is in B-grade malls. This is uh, appealing to just a much wider audience. And, uh, you know, we have an infrastructure built. We have central kitchens teams on the ground that this becomes now much easier to roll out. Uh, I'd say probably the, the you know, the, there'd be the last few markets like Thailand, which we're opening, um, and then maybe Taiwan, Malaysia, uh, and, and hopefully Australia one day. Oh, that'd be great. Come to Australia for sure. And I wanted to ask you, reflecting back on the journey, what do you think's been the hardest thing for you personally? <laughs> COVID. <laughs> I think COVID was was the, the the biggest challenge, but also the most rewarding. I would say, you know, you we were all in the trenches. We we had to pivot the business so much in such a short period of time. I think it, it demonstrated how resilient the business was, how resilient the team was. I think we were incredibly proud with you know, a very small team at that time. And we doubled the size of the team mainly because we fundraised uh, recently. But before that, I mean, we were about 12 people in the office, right? So to 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 kind of shift the business at, at the scale that we did with with the limited resources, uh, I think some, something that we're definitely very proud of. Um, but it was a frightening time. I mean, you know, I, I we were one of the essential services uh, in Singapore. So we, we were allowed into the office. And so... Five of us could come into the office every day, um, and it was just an absolute ghost town, right? There was just no one on the streets, and it was a very weird feeling. And, and But to still see orders coming in and, and, and actually some stores being busier than ever um, was just strange. It was just a very strange time, um, and, uh, and, and we didn't quite know, obviously, in the early days how all of this would pan out. So, um, you know, trying to, to keep all the teams motivated around the world um, – was was uh, was something yeah that was an interesting experience i think uh you know i think we're stronger than ever because of it but uh when when we're, we're right in the midst of it uh, it's was, it was definitely a stressful time yeah pretty uh hair raising i can imagine and tell me what do you do to cope with stress do you have any practices or so for me i guess my constant is sports and runs and just Going outdoors, um, you know, that connection to nature, I think, is, is, is a big one for me. So um, that's what I try to sort of sneak out uh, from two very young boys that, uh, you know, try to, I guess, running around after them is also a little bit of that uh, um, switch off mode. But, yeah, I think it's it's family time. It's just spending time in nature, traveling. Um, that, that's really what, what keeps me going. Um, and uh, I think, you know, especially through COVID, uh, and, and it's, it's good that a lot of this is surfacing now um, and, and more people are talking about it. But I think, you know, for, for entrepreneurs especially, um, you, you need to take that time away uh, and, and be able to find your balance. Whatever way you, you do that, I think it's, uh, it's just becoming increasingly critical. Yeah, 100%. Okay, um, to wrap up, I've got some rapid-fire questions. Firstly, uh, do you have any business advice or any mantras that you live by? One is build the right fundamentals to make sure that your business is sound from the beginning. Uh, and especially, I think this is going to be even more relevant for anyone fundraising next year. Uh, that's what investors are looking at. And number two is really in the early days, trying to understand every part of your business. You know, not We, we talked about being data-led, but at the same time, you need to understand the nuts and bolts. You need to speak to customers on the ground. You need to speak to the team. You need to be able to do the job yourself. Oh, love that. 
Next one. Luck favours the open mind or fortune favours the bold? Oof, tough one. I would say the bold. The bold. I think we need we need that in today's world. We need people that are going to take bold steps. I think the sense of urgency, especially around climate change, is real. I think we, we need bold minds. We need people that are going to take a bet. Yeah, totally. And tell me, what does community mean for you and your business? It's a great question. It's it's something that, you know, is always sort of at the forefront for us. Uh, and, and what we think about community is we think about the partners we work with um, more than uh, more than ever, actually. So it's the, the farms we work with, um, the people we employ. Uh, that was so apparent during COVID, you know, where unfortunately um, some people had to leave us, uh, you know, in, in markets that were very hard hit, like the Philippines. Um, but that that is you know one of our roles right is we 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 support sometimes a whole ecosystem of farmers we we can we can potentially change lives you know people's health um and and impact um their, you know their own life right if, and you know we realize this especially in the developing markets is sometimes the job that someone holds supports a whole family and, and that's that's huge to us and then that's something we care very deeply about totally have you got a favorite business book? Uh, the one recently I read was Tools of Titan by, by Tim Ferriss. So that's, it's a very short read. I think um, I try to keep my books a bit short these days or, you know, just little snippets. So, so, but it's great because it gives you such a, a wide perspective on business. I mean, that's not just business. Obviously, it's about life as well. But, um, yeah, some great insights in that one. Have you read um, The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss? That's his most famous book. Not yet. Not yet. That's the next one. That's right. Yes, I love Tim Ferriss, but yes, he's very well known for The 4-Hour Workweek. Um, okay, and last question. Uh, we believe at Launchpad and at Honeycombers that a rising tide floats all boats. So I'd love to know, do you have an entrepreneur that you think we should invite onto this podcast? Yeah, I think there are a few young entrepreneurs in Singapore that I think are trying to to solve um, some big problems. I, I would say probably one that is really going to create a lot of waves in the sustainability space is Grace Sai. Uh, she is someone who has, you know, studied the whole climate um, tech space quite well. And I think is onto something that is very scalable. And I think that's that's what we need, right? In, the, in that space, I think we need people that are going to try to solve a very big problem and that can solve it for SMEs. Um, because again, we all obviously immediately think about the resources we have and, um, and how we were to get something like that done. Uh, she's setting up a platform that I think is going to be very powerful. Oh, awesome. I will hunt down Grace Sai and uh, get her on the podcast. Adrian, it's been a delight. I'm totally inspired by your story. Thank you for sharing it with me and with all my listeners here today. And we look forward to following your journey and seeing Salad Stop go deeper in Southeast Asia. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Chris, and hope to see you in Singapore soon or back in Singapore. Yeah, back in Singapore for sure. All right. Thanks. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Adrian as much as I did. There's so many takeouts I have, but in a nutshell, I think the big ones are really, firstly, what baby steps can you be taking at the beginning in terms of your environmental impact? Like, can you be asking customers, do you really need a bag or can you bring your own bowl? How scale can mean you can have more impact and if 
you have green initiatives at the very start of your journey, it's a lot easier than trying to tap them on later. I also love the way Adrian talked to using simple data to create new strategies and see new opportunities. And that's what he really needs to do through COVID. I loved the way he talked about really understanding the nuts and bolts of your business. And so that means speaking to your customers on the ground and speaking to your team and really being able to do the job yourself. And then finally, I loved the way he talked about the fine line between offering healthy and sustainable choices and not preaching to your customers. So um, yeah, so much, so much, so much value and learnings from that chat with Adrian. It's really super impressive about what he is creating and how he's creating it with his family. Thank you for listening to Good Business. Okay, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. Selfishly, I created this podcast for my own personal growth. I really wanted to spend an hour with these amazing entrepreneurs that really inspire me. Of course, I also created it for you, our listeners, and the wider community at Launchpad, where we're a group of entrepreneurs all trying, or aspiring rather, to create better businesses together. If you enjoyed this episode, or if you have any feedback, suggestions, or just want to reach out, please do. I'd love to hear from you. You can catch me on email at chris at thehoneycombers.com or go to the launchpad.group website and check it out. Thanks for listening and I hope you leave as inspired as I am to create your own good business.